All right, church, if you have a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. We've been on this journey through the life of Nehemiah together, and we're coming to the tail end of the series. We'll wrap it up next Sunday. Uh, but many of you have been asking, hey, how was the trip to Germany? It was 9,000 miles in three and a half days, okay? So picture that. Uh, my body kind of was over the Atlantic for most of the week this week, somewhere along the way. Those of you who travel internationally know all about those kinds of challenging schedules. But um, one of the things we learned about being over in Germany, first time that the Colts had played in Frankfurt, and that there's a very spirited welcoming, there's a really passionate spirit, enthusiastic sports fans there. Uh, they told us that when the tickets went on sale for the game, that there were 50,000 tickets available for the arena we were playing in. There were 4.5 million Germans in the queue for 50,000 tickets. So everyone in the arena felt like they won the lottery, okay? And Germans, when they feel like they win the lottery, they know how to, you know, they know how to party it up pretty good. Let's just say their containers of beverages were slightly larger than what you're used to seeing in the States even. So it was like, they're very enthusiastic. And of course, anytime you beat the Patriots, it was a great trip, right? Colts fans, like winning. Winning's great, beating the Patriots even better. So, But at the end of the game, um, we, the locker room set up there, we were playing in a kind of a makeshift um, soccer arena. So they created a couple locker rooms um, that were kind of right behind the bench area. And so when we finished changing clothes, showering, all that stuff, and heading to the team buses, we had to walk out of the locker room and you kind of walked up some steps and you had to walk through the arena to get to the buses. And so that's not typically what happens, but that's just the way it was there. And so I'm walking out, and I come up the steps, and I have a, my backpack on and my carry-ons there, and I have, my, I have a neck pillow snapped to my backpack, okay? So you kind of picture it. This is kind of like this, okay? I'm walking with this like this. And I'm walking up, and I got my hood up because my head's cold. It's, it was cold in Germany. It was cold. And so I got my hood up. I got this going. And these four or five really large German men just scream at the top of their lungs as soon as I came to the top of the step, neck pillow, neck pillow guy, neck pillow guy. And I'm like, huh? I'm just strolling, huh? It's like, neck pillow guy. And I go, I turn around and I go, I turn around and I go, eh? They're like, yeah, you neck pillow guy. And they're like, really enthusiastic, neck pillow guy. They start chanting, like, neck pillow guy. And I'm like, uh. I'm like, ah, I'm like, this is, so they, they, they hold out their phones, they're like, neck pillow guy, we want a selfie, we want a selfie, and I go, I was trying, so the players are coming out simultaneous with this, and I'm like, no, you really want to talk to these guys, Bernard Raymond was coming, you know, Bernard, he's like our left tackle, he's like three of me, okay, so Bernard's coming out, and everybody knows Bernard, because he grew up in Austria, so he's like a big, he's like the hero of all heroes. He's like 20 feet from me. I said, don't you want a selfie with Bernard? We want neck pillow guy. I go, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, okay, so I, I make my way over, they, because the fans had kind of all made their way down to the front rail area, because they figured out they could position themselves along this walkway, and they could catch a lot of the players for this, and chaplains, I guess, too, so... <laughs> So I walk up, and I, I don't normally do this. So evidently, those of you who are in may, maybe more high-profile positions, maybe you're used to taking like these kind of fan-like selfies. I didn't know how it worked. So I was walking up there. I walk up to these guys, and they're like, yeah. I put my arm, and they're like, neck pillow guy, and they're going crazy, you know? And then they just hand their phones. Like, 
there's like five cell phones right in my face right here. And I'm like, ah, I go like, I just grab one of them and I'm like, okay. And I just, you know, you're supposed to do this whole thing, right? So I, I snap one and they're all here yelling and screaming. And I thought, okay, I got snap one. You can share it with your friends here, you know? What I didn't realize was several hundred other people along the walkway, that's their cue to who they want to get. Yeah, you follow me? So I snap it thinking I got one neck pillow guy thing here going on, good. And so then I start, I go back and I move the, the entire row of people are like, neck pillow guy, we want a selfie too, we want a selfie too. And I'm like, I just got my hoodie up, I'm trying to, so I snap a few more, I snap a few more selfies like this. I come home, I tell my wife this story. She's like, honey, I am convinced 100% there is something trending all over German social media. <laughs> Hashtag neck pillow guy. And they're talking about, who is this guy? What position does he play? He looks older and thinner than almost everyone else. What position would he play? I'm, I'm just the kneeler, you know? I'm just the kneeler. I'm just like, prayers. So, oh, it was just, it was one of those moments where I was like, okay. Okay, finally, I finally, I finally get to the bus. And the German fans hosted us so well all through the time. Well, Back up a couple of days before that, when we landed, we flew overnight. So when we landed on Friday at noon, local time there, coach wanted everybody in the organization up all day Friday, all the way till bedtime Friday night. So the last thing you want to do is just kind of hang out in your room, right? So that's the day I scheduled to go out and like see Frankfurt. So I went to downtown Frankfurt. I asked some of the locals kind of some sites to hit, and I wanted to see some of the cathedrals. And so I asked for directions to St. Bartholomew, St. Nicholas, and St. Paul's. Those were three cathedrals. So here's a picture of St. Bartholomew's Cathedral. It's beautiful. It's just very large. And if you've been in those more ornate and older, you draw your attention upward. When you walk into a cathedral, the altar and everything's supposed to draw your attention up to worship the Lord that way. And there was people like kneeling. There were people praying. It was a very... Yeah, it was a very spiritual environment. It was, it was very, it was just a great place to visit. And then from there, I went to St. Nicholas, and then I was kind of ending with St. Paul, thinking St. Paul was going to be, right, Paul the Apostle, like that, that cathedral is probably, so I waited to do that one last. And I was, got a little lost, and so I asked a local, I, I, if you find the younger generation, they spoke English really well. So I just found a young person who looked, and she, she spoke English, and she was a uh, native of Frankfurt there, and, and I said, hey, I'm looking for St. Paul. She says, yes, yes, she says, we're here, St. Paul's to see the cathedral, and then she says, she says, but, but just know it's not a cathedral anymore. I go, huh? She goes, they turned it into a museum, and it's where the public toilets are. I froze, okay, and she could tell by my blank stare of response. She repeated. She goes, did you understand? She says, that's St. Paul's, but it's not a cathedral. It's a city museum, and it's where the public toilets are. She says, have fun. Ha <laughs> ha. And she walked away. And I'm just standing there, and I thought, in my head, I'm thinking, please let that not be true. So I made my way to St. Paul's. And here's a picture of the outside of St. Paul's. Does that not look like a cathedral to you? That looks like a beautiful cathedral on the outside, right? And then I go inside. I can't find a cross, I can't find an altar, I can't find any symbols of worship, I can find a history of the city of Frankfurt, it's a city museum. And there's a worker standing inside St. Paul's, and he's dressed like an official worker, and his primary job is to tell everyone where the public toilets are. 
Church, I stood there in St. Paul's and I lost my pastoral marbles right there. How, how does that happen? How, how did we go from St. Paul the Apostle to a museum that's known for public toilet access? Thomas Merton, the quote I put at the top of your notes, he said it this way, the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. The biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. A.W. Tozer, in his famous book, The Pursuit of God, he has amazing prayers at the end of each of the chapters, and at the end of the prayer of chapter 1, he says it this way, he says, oh Lord, would you lead me up from this misty lowland where I've wandered too long? Or Jesus would refer to it in Revelation 3 when he's giving an indictment on the church of Laodicea. He says, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, and you're going to be spit out, you're lukewarm. And so it's settling for too little, it's in the misty lowland, it's, it's being lukewarm. It's this space where I was thinking back to when I stood there and kind of losing my pastoral marble, standing, standing at what used to be, I'm sure, a gorgeous cathedral representing the spiritual heritage and history of our faith who had been converted to something a long ways from that. I just stood there and I had this burden rising within me that I think was rising within Ezra and Nehemiah in the passage we're at today. It's this burden about, there's just too much at stake here. Like, we cannot settle for a compromised and casual vision of following Jesus. We cannot settle for there to be kind of a, a passionless faith, a, a, a faith that just kind of just morphs to the cultural moments, a, a mirror of the culture versus a window into another world. We cannot settle for that. There's too much at stake here. So I found myself just praying, Lord, we cannot be a people who settles for too little. Because that's how Cathedrals become museums. It's a death by inches. It's a settling and a settling and a lukewarmness and a casualness. It just gets strung together. And over the span of decades after decades, and Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the environment that they're working in. Because remember, for God's people, their role in salvation history, the Israelites, they were to be the group of people that the rest of the nations were to look at and say, that's what Yahweh is like, and that's how you live your life with Yahweh. So they were supposed to come, and they were supposed to look at the Israelites and see, ah, oh, Yahweh, life with God, that's how it looks. And for the past 70 years, they've been exiled in Babylon, the walls have been broken, the gates have been burned, the temple's been ransacked. Most likely, the people's faith has been really, yeah, I think it's been a lot of settling been really difficult, probably a fair amount of compromise, a lot of things that needed to get reset and reordered and reformed. And that's the space that Ezra and Nehemiah and a man named Zerubbabel in this chapter, they put themselves to this leadership to say, hey, not on our watch. There's too much at stake here. We are not going to be a generation that settles for less than God's best for our life and for that spiritual community. And that's the space we're in this morning with them. So we're going to look at three ways they address this pull. The gravitational pull of the human condition is to settle for two less. And so Ezra and Nehemiah position three kind of action items we're going to look at today. There's this consecration step, there's a celebration, and then there's stewardship. It's like three actions that pushes back. 
in the opposite direction of compromise. That's what God calls His people to. Like the opposite direction is this rhythm of consecration, celebration, and stewardship. So take a look at Nehemiah 12, verse 27 here. Here's what's going on. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So if you've been with us in the series, you know they spent several months building this wall, two miles, 50 feet high, 12 to 15 feet thick. They get it completed, and they recognize something. They, they say the Levites were sought out. Now, the Levites were the spiritual leaders. Hey, we've got to go get the Levites where they had lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 30. When the priests and Levites had purified, underlined themselves ceremonially, underlined they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So that word I put in your notes, the word purified is the word taher in Hebrew. It literally means to remove contamination to cleanse, to set apart as sacred. It's the word that's the same root as consecration that we discussed in early August around here. It's saying the same concept of being set apart for God's exclusive use. So you see the work going on here? They're saying, hey, we got to go get the Levites because it's not just enough that we got the wall rebuilt. It's not just enough that we got the gates restored. It's not just enough that the people are returning to the city, as good as that is. It's not just enough that their homes are being rebuilt, as good as that is. It's not just enough that their businesses are being opened in the marketplace for business again, as good as all those things are. That's not enough. They can't settle for that. They have to go one step further, and they say, go get the spiritual leaders. We've got some work to do now beyond the physical and as you know, maybe the physical work might have been slightly easier work. The harder work might be now the space they're working in. is working in the space of changing a human heart. It's one thing to change a broken wall and a burned gate in a ransacked temple. It's another thing to renovate a human heart. And that's the space they want to work in. So they call the people. They say, we're not complete with this project until we move in this space of consecration. No, consecrate the priests, consecrate the Levites, consecrate the people, the gates, the wall. Because 70 years of casualness and compromise is over. They're declaring it game over for casualness and compromise. They're going to flush out of what's kind of been seeping in to the hearts of the people during this really difficult time of exile. And they're going to exalt the God who's remained faithful even when they were faithless. And they're going to set themselves apart wholeheartedly to the Lord. It's a call to consecration. In early August around here, several hundred of you responded to that call because we had that call here. Do you remember the Sunday when, I don't know, probably a couple hundred people were standing down here at the front? Do you remember that Sunday? And it was a call of just consecrating their lives. And you remember the week after we had a cross set up here and I think Ted showed this picture a couple weeks ago. We had like lots of people bringing envelopes. You remember what you wrote on your consecrate envelope and you laid it at the cross? You remember that moment? That's it. That was our saying, hey, God is worthy of not just half, not just 75%, 100% of our hearts. We want to consecrate. We want to give an equally, if not more, passionate pull in the opposite direction of compromise and casualness. And that's called consecration in the Bible. And so the call for Ezra and Nehemiah as a call for us today is to consecrate our marriages, consecrate our families, just like these young families up here before us, consecrate your children, consecrate your work, consecrate your finances, consecrate your health, consecrate your priorities, consecrate your whole life to the Lord. That's the call. Otherwise, hear this, risk, 
risk spending your one and only life settling for too little. Risk gathering for worship in museums that used to be cathedrals that exalted the name of Yahweh. See, consecration is an act that the people, it wasn't just enough to finish the physical work, they had to complete it by getting the work in the heart and saying, you know what, Lord, there's a wholehearted setting apart of what's going on in here that you are worthy of, and that's this step that's going on with the people. I like what St. Ignatius of Loyola, he was a Spanish theologian. He founded the Jesuit movement in the 1500s. Look at what Ignatius said. Our only desire, our one choice should be this. Hear this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Whoo, church, what a vision. What a vision for not settling. What a vision for the gigantic yes that clarifies thousands of no's that I just want and I choose whatever leads to God's deepening life in me. That's the prayer of a consecrated heart. And that's what Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel are working with, with the people. They're trying to get the space in their heart where there probably was a conflicted wanting and choosing lots of other things, and now they're trying to get just one, a singular wholehearted surrender to God's deepening work in them. And that's how cathedrals don't become museums is this movement of consecration. Because church, I thought about around here, I said, what, what's it going to take for, you know, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years from now, that this just doesn't become like a, what if it just become a multi-purpose athletic center that they just have like some pictures of Eagle Church worship gatherings on the walls, and when people come in at basketball and volleyball and all these other things going on, and people say, has this always been an athletic facility? Oh, no. It was originally a church. What happened in here? And there's images on the wall, because that's what it was at St. Paul's. There's images of what it used to be. And so I stand with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra and say, by God's grace, let it be church not on our watch. And how does that not happen? We double down the opposite direction, consecration. And then we couple it with the second movement. Do you see it? It's celebration. Look at verse 31. They said, hey, we're going to consecrate, we're going to purify, we've got to get some things set right, and then it's time to lift up our voices. Look at this, verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. I wouldn't have been excited about that choirs, right? <laughs> but now look, top of the dung, and then Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them. And now jump down to verse 38. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Jump down to verse 40. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests. So you see this is the movement of celebration. So from consecration to celebration. Do you see what's happening? Remember, the walls are like 50 feet high. So this is a big elevated platform, and they're 10 to 15 feet thick, so there's plenty of room to stand on top of those walls. And Ezra and Nehemiah's rebels say, hey, we got a perfect place to put the choir. Get the Levites, get the worship leaders, get the band, get the trumpet, get the drums, get everybody else, get the choirs, get them on top of the wall. You go this way, we'll go this way. Kind of picture it like a horseshoe shape, right? And then they're kind of facing each other, and I'm sure the pile of people is in the middle. Do you see that? 
They're like, huh, this is a moment. And everybody's got to lift their eyes up and see this amazing environment now of creating. And they're lifting their voices. And I want you to see, this is the step of celebration. Here, here's what's happening in this step. It's saying, you know what? The wall isn't the most important thing, though that was important. The gates being restored, that's not the most important thing, though that was important. Our businesses being reopened, that's important, not the most important thing. Our homes being restored, important, not the most important thing. All the family members coming back to our hometown of Jerusalem, really important, not the most important thing. Do you see it? The Babylonians, like, no longer oppressing us, important, not the most important thing. Do you see it? Do you feel it? So this is the moment where they say, you know what, as good, as important, all that, there is one who is worthy of this response. They're saying, God, you and you alone, you are glorious, you are awesome, you are great, you're clothed with splendor and majesty. The only explanation for us as a people is you, Yahweh, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, you and you alone are worthy of this celebration and worship, and this is the moment. Tim Keller said it this way, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's an idol. This is the confrontation. Celebration confronts the idolatry of the heart. I think it was Keller who also wrote that our our hearts are like idol factories. Have you noticed this about our lives? We have a propensity in the human condition to settle for too littles and to exalt good things to ultimate things. That's idolatry. And do you know what confronts that? Worship, celebration. Get the Levites, get the worship leaders, get the band, get the vocalists, get the choirs, get them on top of the walls and start commissioning them. What are they doing? They're singing a lot of the songs that are recorded in your Bible. Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 would have been like their songbook they would have selected from. Can you imagine them singing? I picture them singing like Psalm 118. I bet they sang this section out of the psalm. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord's my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Can you hear it, church? Can you hear that resounding out of the people in Jerusalem? Yes, they worked hard. Yes, they busted their tails. Remember, they're sleeping with their work clothes on. They had a lot of resistance. They had a lot of enemies. Yes, the enemies were subdued, but notice the direction of the celebration was God did it. It was the Lord who was the explanation. He's the one who helped. And then I think they probably sang Psalm 44. I put this one. Check this line out. I bet they sang this song. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Jacob's like an Old Testament term for the people of Israel. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I did not trust in my bow or my sword doesn't bring me victory. In this case, my hammer, my nails, my saw. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. Remember the adversaries, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem? They're probably like, yeah, Sambalot, Tobiah. They didn't get the last word. In God, he got the last word. We make our boast all day long. And we praise your name forever and ever. Church, do you see this? Consecration is the move of kind of a setting apart of the heart. Celebration is the move that St. Augustine calls rightly ordering the loves of the heart. That's what worship is. Worship rightly orders the loves. Worship confronts when good things become ultimate things, and it clarifies there's only one worthy of the ultimate seat of value and worth in our hearts, and that's our great God who's come to us in Jesus. There's no one worthy of our devotion like Him. And worship helps set that. It exposes those things. It gets the order set. 
And Psalm 115 reminds us, you got to get this right in the heart of the people because what they worship affects who they become. That's Psalm 115, if you want to look it up later. Whatever occupies that place of ultimate value and worth in your heart and in your life shapes more than anything else the kind of person you become. So, if you're here and you're really frustrated about like when you look in the mirror or you examine what's going on in the heart and you're like, I don't like like who I'm becoming, I don't like what's coming out of my heart, one of the action steps here would be examine the place of worship and idolatry and sorting out the loves of the heart. Because work's important, but when work becomes your worship, do you know that's how you become super driven and probably bound with a fair amount of anxiety? Like kids, kids are wonderful. Family life is wonderful. It's wonderful to have a family. It's wonderful to raise children. They just can't be ultimate. When you put kids on the place of the ultimate throne, this is how you become like a super helicoptering, controlling parent. And I promise you are driven a fair amount of anxiety with that. Or maybe it's comfort and convenience. Maybe for you, it's like you're just going to live for the next whatever. You're going to stack up as much money in the 401k as big as you can get it. Then you're going to golf your way into the eternity, and you're going to be just like lay on a beach, collect seashells in the Gulf of Mexico kind of thing. When you worship comfort and convenience in that way, this is then how you become, right? This is how you become slothful and lazy and passive and disengaged, and you're risking spending your one and only life settling for too little. I don't want to do that. How about you? I don't want to do that. Well, we've got to work in the space of consecration and celebration to push back against the pull to settle for too little. And then he ends with a third movement. Stay with me now. He gets to stewardship. Now, if it already wasn't a little personal enough, it's about to get a little more meddling and personal for the Israelites and for us here because now he's going to go to their pocketbooks and their possessions. Look what he says, verse 44. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. Tithes, a Bible term for first 10%. From the fields around the towns they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. Those were like the spiritual leaders. Today, language here might be like pastors and elders, kind of the spiritual leader types around. And so, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. Jump down to verse 47. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So this is the movement. When you open your Bible and you read through it for any length of time, you're going to find this kind of a rhythm in it, that to be in relationship with God is to bring an offering to Him. Have you noticed that? It doesn't take long. You don't have to get very many pages in your Bible to find out they're bringing an offering to Him. The concept of dealing with our money and possessions, God says, is a really big deal in a walk with Him. And it's not because He needs it. People say, well, why does He need me to bring it up? Does God need us to bring it up? Of course not. The Bible says He owns the world and everything in it. It's about who we become as we cultivate this muscle of bringing an offering. It's about working this space of you take the first 10%, that's the tithe, you take the first 10% of whatever God's given us and we bring it to the Lord as an offering. You say, where do you bring it? You bring it to the place where your primary spiritual care and development is being given because that's how that 
entity runs. That's how people like me are able to do what I'm doing for full time. I don't have to go back. What was happening in that day, we're going to learn next week, is the pastors had to go back to the fields and work because there wasn't enough money to pay them to do their spiritual leadership role. And so that's how that happened. And so Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, this couldn't be that way. Worship leaders and pastors and all that. Hey, there's certain people, certain roles and positions that need to be funded by the people of God. How does that happen? First fruits giving. People bring the first 10% of whatever is given them, and they entrust it to the Lord as an offering in their place of spiritual worship and care, primarily their local church and other ministries that are supporting your care and nourishment. That's how this works. And Nehemiah and Ezra are like, hey, we've got to get this set because they kind of probably, because it was so difficult for these 70 years, they didn't have a place to bring their offerings. The temple was ransacked. They probably got out of the habit of all at dealing with their money and possessions. So this was the step of getting it set. It's, it's kind of the Old Testament picture of what Jesus then will reference in Matthew 6.19. You've heard me say this before. The, the Matthew 6.19 principle of stewardship is this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the Matthew 6. So here's what Jesus says. The reason God talks so much about this is because he cares about this. He says, you want to know what's going on here? Pay attention to this. He says, the reason I'm talking about this is because this has a power to direct this. You all know that, right? What we do with this affects this. Just start investing some stock in some company you don't have any stock in right now. Start buying a bunch of that stock. What are you going to start paying attention to? You're all of a sudden going to be real interested in what's going on in that company and what's going on with their decisions because this has a power to affect this. And so Jesus says, hey, I want to talk about this because I care about this. This is a means to the bigger end. So Ezra and Nehemiah are like, hey, Israelite people, we got to get sorted out on first fruits so we can get the heart rightly ordering the loves of the heart. Because when this begins to sit in a place of ultimate value and worth, then it starts driving who you become. That's how you become a greedy and love of money, and it drives the anxiety around stuff and possessions. Say, well, how do I battle back against it? Give it away. Give it away, give it away, give it away. And the act of faith is this. God can do more with our 90% than we can do with 100%. That's the act of faith. When you do the math, say, God, I'm just going to trust you. You're going to do more with the 90% that I've left over than I'm going to be able to do with 100%. Listen to how Ben Patterson puts it this way. Ben says it this way. There was a time when all those commands of God, speaking about these kinds of commands, for us to thank and praise Him and give offerings to Him seemed to be a little odd. Did He need them to feel better about Himself? Was He like the kid in junior high who stood around with his hands in his pockets fishing for compliments? No, God doesn't need our praise or our offerings. We need to give it. For to praise God is to sharpen our soul's vision, hear this, of His greatness and goodness, and thus to increase our soul's greatness and goodness. God doesn't need our thanks or our praise or our offerings to feel better about Himself. We need to thank and praise Him to be better ourselves. It's a gift to us to give God thanks and praise. So some of you right now might be feeling like this article I read several years ago. There was this mom who was teaching her kid how to tie shoes, and her son was just in a heap of tears one day. He'd learned how to tie his shoes, and he's in his heap of tears getting ready for school, and he's just bawling his eyes out at the front door. And his mom's like, son, it's not that hard. You know how to do it. He says, mom, I'm not crying because my shoes are hard to tie. I'm crying because I have to do it the rest of my life. <laughs> Sometimes with this issue... When we talk about stewardship and the church and when you read in the scriptures and God brings it up on a regular basis, and we'll continue to talk about it around here because Nehemiah is going to address it next week again. 
It's that, gosh, I have to do this the rest of my life. And I want you to have this picture of it's God's, it has our best in mind. He doesn't want us to settle for too little. Don't settle for a life that's like just kind of covered up with the love of money. Don't settle for a greedy life. Like, be a generous heart. Cultivate this gift of giving. See what God will do. Imagine who you might become. And so this, if this is a stretch for you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard that God has some expectation if you're going to follow Him of how you handle your finances. Well, the starting point is this. Don't make it any more complicated than this. Say, okay, God, whatever you entrust me with is income, before taxes, before mortgage, before all the other stuff that hits the budget, here are the first fruits, the first 10% is yours. Test Him in it. See what He does. Bring it to Him as an offering and see what God does with the 90%. If you've never done that in your walk with God, whew, you're in for a journey that I think is going to be filled with all kinds of God moments. Because God cares about who we're becoming as a people. The alternative is to risk settling for too little. It's to risk spending our times in the misty lowlands. It's to risk ending up like Revelation 3 where Jesus said, Church of Laodicea, lukewarm. It's to risk a cathedral becoming a museum. There's a lot at stake with all this stuff. And so, Eagle family, this morning, the call is to consecration, celebration, and stewardship. That by His grace, we won't settle for less than His best for our lives. So, worship team, why don't you come on back up? I'm going to close this off this way. I put some questions in your notes. I feel like this is the kind of message that maybe is some questions of reflection for you this week, perhaps around your dinner table with your spouse, your family, perhaps in your small group, or those of you with roommates. Have some conversation with a trusted friend about this. What have I sensed the pull? Where have I sensed the pull to settle for less than God's best in my life right now? Where do you sense that going on in your heart? Where have I found myself wandering around in misty lowlands? Where have things gotten lukewarm in my walk? And then lastly, what decisions do I need to make that furthers God's deepening life in me? So church... I got back from my, um, my little tour of the cathedrals, and I was, you know, yeah, I was in a lot of reflective space just thinking about this, and um, I went into our kitchen, like there was a cafeteria area where they were serving us at the hotel, and there was a young worker in the kitchen staff, and she asked me, she knew I was out looking, she says, hey, how was your visit around Frankfurt? And I said, oh, I enjoyed St. Bartholomew's and St. Nicholas, and I said, but I was just really confused about St. Paul's. And she was a young Frankfurt citizen. And she said, oh. She said, yeah. And she said this. She says, me and my friends, we found God's really active and at work, not in the cathedrals. She said, we found there's like these churches that meet in little smaller, non-cathedral looking space. And we found that's the place where God's active. I thought, huh. You know what it reminded me? Jesus said, you know what? He's going to build his church. Nothing's going to stop it. Even decades of compromise and casualness and settling, and even when cathedrals become museums, God's like, okay. And then he worked, right? He's got this, what she was trying to tell me is, and I was so encouraged. She's like, she's connected to a little, a little church that meets in this like little strip mall type place. And she said, God's at work there. Don't be discouraged. God's at work. The church in Germany is alive and well. It just looks a little different than maybe it's looked in the past. And there's our hope. 
There's a young lady say, you know what? I'm not going to settle for something becoming music. I'm not going to settle for that. We're going to choose consecration. We're going to choose celebration. We're going to choose stewardship. And by his grace, a place like this will be a house of worship until Jesus returns. That he'll find us faithful. He'll find us consecrated. He'll find us celebrating. He'll find us stewarding our resources that reflect being the people of God. That what explains this group is we worship Jesus. He's our King. He's our Lord. That's the explanation for this body of people. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you for the boldness of a man like Nehemiah and Ezra. Thank you for your consistent pursuit of us when we fall and wander and stray and get distracted. I think of all the times, Lord, I've just gotten the order of loves of my heart all in the wrong place. I pray that today, Lord, I pray that this week you search our hearts. May this be a reset. May this be a rightly ordering. And would you, by the power of your spirit, enable Eagle Church not to be a body that settles for anything less than your best. May we not be a people who settle for too little. May you find us consecrated wholeheartedly to you. May you find us celebrating, worshiping you in spirit and truth. May you find us good stewards over all you've entrusted us with. We worship you in Jesus' name.